0: Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wa my dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this episode on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms and if you're tuning in via YouTube, don't be cheeky remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel Today's guest is a very interesting one No doubt, we'll stir the emotions and ruffle the feathers on both the Muslim and non-Muslim sides. He is someone who is an iconic figure of somewhat associated with the British far right. He was the former youth leader of the British Nationalist Party and later the head of publicity. He's the founder of the Patriotic Alternative and that's none other than Mark Collette. Mark, welcome.
1: Well thank you for having me here. It's, uh, it's been a long journey but yeah. I'm sure it'll be worth it.
0: Likewise, I'm I'm thankful that you made the time and the journey from up north to come here.
1: Well, as I said, I'm really looking forward to this. We've spoken a little bit on the phone. We've spoken before the show, and we've had some quite interesting discussions off camera, so I'm hoping we can get into some of that and present our views in a constructive manner over the next couple of hours.
0: Most definitely. I mean, the f- I mean, I knew of you. I remember the famous documentary that was made about you when you were th- with the BMP. I think it's still up on YouTube. But that documentary still is. Or yeah, of it still is. it's
1: kind of strange because when you have documentaries made about you and you're quite young, you sort of look back on them and it's kind of a snapshot in time that everyone judges you on. And as you develop and you change over your life, people kind of refer back to that. And uh, sometimes those things can be a little bit misleading. And sometimes those things are prepared in a certain way.
0: Uh, do you ever cringe at
1: any aspects of it? Oh, Of course I do. Of course I do. I think that everyone would cringe at things they did in their early 20s when they're in their 40s. You know, I'm a very sort of different person in many ways because I'm 20 years older, you know, I've grown up, I've got a child now, I'm in a different phase of my life. And what you've also got to remember is when you're having a documentary made about you, Those documentaries entail hundreds and hundreds of hours of filming to create a 45 to 55-minute piece. So when a documentary maker is preparing that, one thing you learn over the course of being involved in a documentary is just how sneaky these people can be. So if you want to... Most documentaries, they set the tone by using music... And obviously people know the importance of music, but also cutaways. So if you go into someone's house and you want to paint them as a loving, you know, family, you would cut away at different because the public have a very, very short attention span. Mm-hmm. So rather than just focusing the camera on the people you're making the documentary about, you cut away to different um what are called establishing shots in the room. And these cutaways might go to a family picture on the mantelpiece, you know, a teddy bear on a chair. And these would be good feeling things. Whereas if you want to paint a bad picture of somebody, you could look round the house, you could visit their house, maybe 20 times and every time it's immaculate. But one time, there's a couple of pots and pans in the sink, and it looks a bit untidy just because they're having a busy day. And The documentary maker would capture that one shot and then use that as the cutaway, as an establishing shot to paint those people as kind of disorganized, dirty, you know, they don't even clean their pots and pans. And you can see the tricks documentary filmmakers use or um, employ in order to paint a picture of people. It is sometimes misleading or to draw or to get the viewer to draw inference or to dislike the people, the documentaries being made out about. So if I was to go back and do things like that again, I wouldn't do them, <laughs> I wouldn't do any documentaries. I, I definitely believe that people should speak to the press, but they should do so in a controlled environment, fly on the wall documentaries, are made by documentary filmmakers with an outcome that is already been decided. It's Mm -hmm. not like they make the documentary and say, well, this is what we think of the person after making the documentary. They say, this is what we think of the person. Now we've got to get the shots to paint that person in the way we wish. So yeah, I look back on that and it's, you know, definitely not my finest moment. A lot of people, you know, I've made uh, comments about that over my lifetime. And it's kind of one of those things now where I sort of roll my eyes, and I'm like,
0: Oh, God, not that again. But I don't want to at all, today's conversation is not about a 20 year old documentary for sure, or a 15, 10, 15 year old documentary. But one of the inferences or one of the themes was, you were kind of a my way or the highway type of guy back then. Are you still the are you still that like, even my way or the highway? Um, To a large degree,
1: yes. I mean, I I believe that I'm obviously right in what I do. I I have, you know, I'm somebody who has strong convictions and I believe that what I am doing is right. I believe it's just, and I believe it is morally correct. And I think that there's always room and I try to be more compromising these days. I probably go about things in a slightly better way. I'd say I'm definitely more used to speaking to people. Um, But I'm certainly, uh, you know, if you said to me, Am I uncompromising in the outcome that I want to achieve? Absolutely. You know, I'm not one of these people who has watered down um, my core values, I'm not somebody who has sold out, I'm not somebody who has basically tried to you know, drop a lot of the things that I've said in the past for financial gain or short-term political gain, which is what a lot of people do. A lot of people come into politics and they have lofty ideals, they have strong convictions, and over time they sell out, they water down because they think that's a path to either power or money. And I've never done that.
0: Um, the first exposure that Muslims would have had in recent years is your engagement with Daniel Hakikachu. Yes, um, I felt about two or three years ago, wasn't it? Is it that far back, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, twenty twenty. You know what?
1: It's <clears throat> funny you say that because that still feels so fresh in my mind. And I found that a really interesting chat because I actually, I think we both came into that from different angles. Daniel was looking for differences, and I was sort of looking for similarities. And I was saying, "Hey, I know there are differences, but are there things that we can agree on, which would help us understand each other to a greater degree?" And I. That's how I like to approach chats. I don't want to come here as an adversary. I want to come here looking for things that we may agree on because I would rather deal with other ethnic groups in a peaceful and understanding manner. You know, I'm not a multiculturalist, I'm not a multiracialist, but I don't want war or conflict between ethnic, religious or racial groups.
0: It's interesting you say that because whilst we were talking in the build-up to this podcast, um, you actually said to me, Look, Diddy, have you watched this Daniel hage Because I don't want to repeat of that. I don't see it as fruitful to do it again. And I found your opening speech to be sufficient to let me know where you're at. What is an ethno-nationalist? An
1: ethno-nationalist is someone who believes that the world is fundamentally a diverse place, filled with different ethnic, religious, racial groups. And an ethno-nationalist wants to preserve that rich tapestry. However, an ethno-nationalist believes that when all of those diverse groups are placed into one small confined area, it leads to conflict. A way of talking about that in a very simplified term is that diversity plus proximity equals conflict.
0: Why do you believe it leads to conflict? Why does it lead think, to conflict?
1: I think, well, Historically, it does lead to conflict. There's there's no debating that. If you look everywhere in the world where multiculturalism has been tried, where we've got all these different cultures. Modern
0: multiculturalism. I
1: mean, well, everywhere you look, whether it be in Eastern Europe, whether it be the Far East, whether it's Africa, even if you look at the example of Northern Ireland with Catholics and Protestants, multiculturalism has caused conflict. But I don't want conflict. I do not want conflict. I do not want people at each other's throats. I believe the world is a diverse place where different ethnic groups should be allowed to flourish. They should be allowed self-determination to take their future into their own hands and develop in the way they see fit. So not only am I against multiculturalism, but I'm also against sort of Zionist Western imperial wars that try to impose sort of the modern Judeo-American liberal democracy upon Other countries.
0: Let me ask you this. Why do you choose your type of nationalism or tribalism to be one based on ethnicity? Why not religion? Why not something that could be more encompassing?
1: I do that because I think that ethnicity is more important. I believe that religion is very dear to people like yourself. But to me, I see religion as something that is expressed through different ethnic groups. So the way, say, Christianity was expressed by the English is different to the way Christianity would be expressed by Africans who've embraced it. Mm -hmm. And if Christianity had been embraced in Japan or China, I believe that would be radically different again from an African or European expression of Christianity. I think ethnicity is very important. And I believe when you look at racial or ethnic groups, they are distinct they express themselves through distinct cultures and traditions and I believe those things are high ideals that should be preserved and they should be explored and I think that multiculturalism is something that pushes these different cultures together and you either get well you get conflict as the reality but you could also get as you do in some areas before the conflict breaks out one group dominating the other or a particular culture being watered down or traditions being lost. And I think that's happened specifically in the West. It hasn't happened in places like Eastern Europe. But in this country, you see there are a lot of what would be known on the census as white British communities, so English, Irish, Scots or Welsh, who have basically given up their culture within a multicultural society and they are now individualistic, they are atomised, they are separated and then society for that ethnic group, as they used to know it, breaks down and they lose their societal bonds.
0: What culture do you think they've compromised or given up? Like, what actual culture have they given up?
1: Pretty much everything.
0: Give us some examples. Well, I think if you look back, say to like
1: the 1970s, just the 1970s, and you look at the miners' strikes, the miners' strikes were a perfect example of different ethnic groups around the country, or different communities that were part of an ethnic group around the country, collectivising, fighting for something they believed in, and pushing back against the state and those people were bonded because their culture was built around mining so if you go to former mining towns or cities where mining was prevalent Mm. there was an entire sort of mining culture from the pubs the street names the cult everything was steeped in that it was all built around that and when our culture was taken away from us, I think that was the last time you saw sort of an English, the English as it were, as an ethnic group rising up against the state, fighting back against the state, expressing themselves as an ethnic group and standing together as communities. And when that industry went, those communities sadly fell to pieces. They lost what bound them. And those places then became what are now known, tragically, as sink estates. And I think when people do lose culture, that's a perfect example of how they do lose culture and what people become when they lose it.
0: Who do you blame for the loss of that culture? Uh,
1: The establishment, the political establishment, to some degree, the media. And I think white people... But they're white English like you. There's also other things. There's materialism. There's a love for money there is this push to get women into the workplace, feminism, there's so many things that swirl around, specifically white people, basically destroying their minds, turning them into sort of lesser people, if you like, who become slaves to certain desires. And the end effect of that, or, you know, the net effect of that is the community and the traditionalism dissolves
0: why are pakis muzis and turks to blame for that then i don't think they are it's a very common rhetoric that you'll hear among some patriots many patriots they've come they've taken our culture they've changed the culture they've changed the scenery they've done this mosques that this kebab shops you hear it all the time online you see it in person you see in tommy robinson's demos these guys have come why are people of color muslims whatever you want to call the non-white non-indigenous, why are we to blame for the loss of a culture which was implemented by white men?
1: Well, I didn't say you were, I said the political establishment. Sure, 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 sure. The political establishment is to blame for that. But I think what you end up with is not only has our culture been watered down, destroyed, taken away from us, not only are we told that we're racist if we embrace our culture and our traditions, you know, if we have an affinity for our people, it's essentially a crime now. You know, we've just had a guy found guilty in Crown Court in Leeds for, for putting up stickers. Some, Yeah, that the prosecution yeah. said constituted lawful speech, didn't cause anyone to break the law, and that essentially were truthful, but the truth is no defense in that kind of case. But he advocated for his people, and it's a crime. And I think you have all that happening to white people. Then at the same time, the government is creating conditions whereby millions of people come to this country from other countries, and when they come, they are incentivized in many ways to retain their culture. They do retain their culture. They take over large parts of cities and towns. And that is obviously going to cause some t- kind of... That's obviously going to cause some kind of resentment.
0: Can I share a statement of the Prophet Muhammad yeah, with you? Sure. <clears throat> think think of it like this, Mark. Yeah, I mean, Prophet Muhammad upon Ubi Peace is a beloved man to a fifth of humanity as we speak. Uh, a man who Muslims have believed for 14 centuries was the best of creation amongst the many line of other prophets that Jews and Christians believe in. And in his final sermon, to think of all the things that Prophet Muhammad could have spoken about, he addresses ethno-nationalism. He said in his final sermon, an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, nor does a non-Arab have any superiority over an Arab. A white has no superiority over a black, nor does a black have any superiority over a white, except in piety and good action. What do you think of that statement?
1: I've never said anything about superiority. I don't talk about superior. I talk about different. And different and superior are different things. Now, the way different groups express their culture, their traditions, that is up to them. And there's also something about objectivity, and something that's subjective. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, if you have two people, you can say one is objectively taller than the other, that's objective. And you know, when my daughter stands next to another little girl, and the other girl's taller, you can say, well, objectively, my daughter is the smaller of the two. But subjectively, regardless of that, my daughter will always be the best. Because she's mine. And I think racial or ethnic groups do have naturally, it's natural to have an in-group preference. And it's natural to subjectively look on your group as your preferred group. That's just natural. You look on your immediate family as the ones you love most, as the ones you want to spend the most time with. That is a natural thing. I'm Don't talk in terms of superiority. But if you ask me, who do I love most? I love my people. I love my culture. To me, on a subjective level, it is the best. And I don't mean that in a sense that it stands above all else objectively, because that would be something that could be debated and quantified. But I think it's only natural for people to love their ways the most. And I think if I was to say on television, if you were to sit me on national television in front of a group of presenters or politicians say on like question time, mm. and said, you know, do I love my own people the most to me? Or are they the best? Are they the most precious? I'd say, oh, of course, there would be booze. But if a black man was to sit on that stage, and they said, you know, who do you love the most? And he said, Well, I love my, my family, I love my black culture, I love my black community, they're the dearest to me, everyone would be politely applauding. And I think what we're getting into here, is this double standard, which I believe is leveraged against white people, so that white people feel that they cannot express themselves, so they become deracinated, so they become fearful of even suggesting that there are differences, or that they do have some
0: innate in-group preference. And I I personally don't think there's, there's, in principle, an issue with that at all, because you're absolutely correct that... I'm not talking about the rightness or the wrongness of it, at least from an Islamic perspective, because I've just read that statement from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. But naturally, human beings incline towards those who look like them, speak like them, eat like them, have the same religion, same culture. It's natural. We human beings, it's a survival instinct. We gravitate and incline towards those who are like us. I get that. I guess what I'm positing to you is that I'm not trying to exchange ideas here because as an ethno-nationalist and as a pan-Islamic Muslim a white English Muslim is closer to me in this life and the next than a fellow Bengali, um, my parents from Bangladesh, who's a Hindu or an atheist. Literally, that is my brother. That Englishman is my brother in this life and next. Our children can marry We can eat each other's food without questioning, is it halal or not? And that's my brother. That's my people in terms of priority first. Yeah. But would you regard the 312,000, according to the census 2021, 312,000 English, Northern Irish, Welsh and Scottish Muslims as your people?
1: That's difficult. I think they'd have a very different outlook to me. When I talk about my people, obviously, there is an extended group of people who are my people, people who are from my ethnic group, but there are also people who are ethno-nationalists. My primary group is people who are ethno-nationalists from, you know, my ethnic group. What about white lefties and white Muslims? I think white lefties are definitely not people that I hold in high regard, in the slightest. Do you hold um, a white
0: Muslim high regard? I think, regard? look...
1: I think white Muslims are people, in an ideal world, I don't want white English men or women converting to Islam. I'll be honest. But, but I understand why it's happening. Why? Oh, well, that's a simple, that's, 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 one of the, that's one of the simplest things you could ask me. I was actually talking about this on a stream the other night. I talk about Islam as being morally, at the moment very strong. So if you're a white boy at school, so you're a white English boy and you're at school, what are the pressures on you? Well, if you're a white boy, you can be a racist, you know, xenophobic, hate-filled outsider, or you can be smiled on if you're gay, transgender, come to school in a dress, adopt all that weakness, madness and poison. So you've got hated outsider or smiled upon for accepting the poison. And if you're white and a white boy and you say to people, well, why are we hated for this? Why can't I reject that? You're going to get a lot of hate. You're going to run into a lot of brick walls. But if you accept Islam, you can find a supportive strong community that will tell you all of that's madness. You need to find a woman. You need to settle down. She needs to be a traditional wife. She needs to raise your children. You need to grow a family. And as a white boy, you're probably going to look at that and say that has more in common with my natural feelings. That's got more in common with the way my ancestors lived than the way many modern white people live in a degenerate, atomized, materialistic, hedonistic society. So I think that white men, especially, are looking at the options. And if you become an ethno-nationalist, well, there could be a lot of consequences. But if you go and accept Islam, you'll be more smiled upon for doing that.
0: By who? Who's going to smile upon them becoming Muslim?
1: I'll tell you this. They can be labeled as Islamist radicals. No, no, no. If (coughs) If you become a Muslim, there are Muslim community centres. There oh, are yes. mosques. There are support groups. Oh, yes. There is entire group of Thousands. people with exactly. Thousands. So I'm right. Entire group of people with in group preference who celebrate their culture, sure, tradition. Yeah. Okay, you know, and they are strong as a group. If you join an ethno nationalist group, you don't have that. There are cultural institutions to back you up. If you join an Islamic group, so I think one of the driving factors that is turning young white people to Islam is that the only other viable option to Islam is the degenerate madness. So people, people go to Islam for a more traditional life.
0: I want to share a verse of the Quran with you. I want to get your thoughts on it. God said, we created you from a single pair of male and female and made you into nations and tribes that ye may know each other and get to know each other, not despise each other in your ideal ethno-nationalist hypothetical worldview, will there ever be a chance of cultural exchanges? Of course. And getting to know one another?
1: Look, I want to be totally clear here. The world's a diverse place, and it's better off for being a diverse place. And diversity doesn't mean borders that can never be crossed or that people can never talk to one another, or there can never be cultural exchanges or there can never be friendships or travel or mutual learning or development or trade. Of course there can. But what I'm saying is if there are two groups of people who have developed in isolation for thousands of years and have gone very separate ways culturally, forcing those people together In a very close proximity, more often than not, i.e. 90% plus of the time, leads to conflict. And that is why we've seen conflicts all over the world where multiculturalism has been trialed and failed again and again and again. But that doesn't mean we can't be friends. You know, if you look at British sanctions on Islamic countries, I'd drop those sanctions tomorrow. I don't see why. Britain has to be at loggerheads with Iran, so we can't buy Iranian oil. I don't understand. What about the military bases? I don't want British military bases anywhere but except for on British soil. They're but there. I, but I, there's not. Wait a second. No, you talking. No, 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 no. I want your thoughts. I want your no, thoughts. No, no, no. Get my thoughts. These are my thoughts, and I want to be very clear to you, to your audience, and to state this to my audience that will be watching this. I cannot stand the current political establishment. That means I cannot stand the government, I cannot stand local government, I cannot stand the media, I cannot stand institutional power throughout universities, the police force, the national health service, I can't stand any of that. And I want to see that crumble and be replaced by something better. And something better would be a world where there are not British and American military bases all over the Middle East fighting wars on behalf of the Zionist. State of Israel, I do not want what is essentially a Zionist occupational government ruling over Britain. I'm not here today to defend the British government and their actions. I'm pretty sure you're not their biggest fan, and I can assure you I'm not either.
0: I guess why I'm asking that is that you know <clears throat> you know when you speak to the various spectrum of patriots on the ground, right, and you know they will lionize the fallen soldiers of World War I and World War II, you lionized Churchill and so forth. Whether you see them, whether you argue that those were Zionist-led wars or they were just European colonial wars, intra-wars between various European powers, the point of matter is that there is a lionization, a celebration of colonialism. Ultimately, that's what it is. When, when forefathers from the Indian subcontinent fought for the British, Rest assured, the vast majority didn't do it by choice. Many did it for money, for a stipend. Others did it in the hope that they'd be granted independence and that if we fight for them, probably they'll leave. Or if they lose the war, they'll be weakened and we can probably get our independence. The reasons varied. But what happened, and I'm bringing it right close to my personal family now, Mark. My father came here in 1966 with uh, my grandfather. My grandfather came here in 59. Um, upon invitation now you can dispute what upon invitation means what that meant was that there were opportunities that were granted to east and west pakistan at the time that said hey you know there's employment opportunities here come we need to rebuild britain after world war many of our men have died um unfortunately a lot of women in the workforce we want to take them back into the home uh, and we need you guys to come and do labor work for us and we came they came not even to really stay permanently. They were called packies and curry munchers and they were they were racially abused and all sorts. But they decided to stay. The money was good. The money was good because comparatively to the situation back home, back home, it was better. And they had children who settled and went into the schools. What do you do with us? What do you do with us? I mean, as, as, as an ethno-nationalist, the founder of Patriotic Alternative, What do you do with third and fourth generation Muslims that are the children of immigrants who came to help rebuild Britain?
1: Well, I would offer a voluntary repatriation programme that essentially gave people generous grants to leave this country. But that would be done in conjunction with us throwing off the shackles of the Zionist occupational government and making Muslim countries a safe place for Muslims. You see, I believe the vast majority of Islamic immigration is now carried out for two reasons. There are push and pull factors. The push factor is America and Britain have been used as, or their soldiers have been used as nothing more than mercenary forces on behalf of Israel. So we pound the Middle East into dust for no benefit of our own, because many times our guys come home, either in body bags, with PTSD, or with PTSD, with horrific injuries, and our communities are damaged, we gain nothing from this. And there's many people also in the Middle East who gain nothing from it. There are many men who die fighting against British and American forces. There are many homes, there are many areas that are completely flattened to absolute rubble, many women and children die, there is starvation, there is famine, there is disease that then spreads in the aftermath of these terrible wars, and these people are pushed out of their homeland, they're displaced. That's the push factor. Then you have the pull factor, which is the British government will spend billions of pounds each year, then opening Britain's border, giving generous benefits to people who come here as either uh, asylum seekers or um, migrant workers. And what we're seeing is a mass movement of people from different parts of the world to the West. And when looking at the Islamic world, the majority of people who come here from the Islamic world, well, they're coming here because they have nowhere to live, because Britain and America have destroyed large parts of the Muslim world at the behest of the state of Israel and at the behest of Zionist plants who work here within the West to influence Western politics. And I don't think you can start unraveling the problems that your people face and that my people face without acknowledging the problems of Zionist control first.
0: Why can it not just be the case, let's put the Zionist element aside and we are going to touch upon this in, in greater detail uh, in this conversation. Why can it not just be the case that this is the price that you pay for having an empire? Why, why can't it not just be the case that this is the price you pay for imperialism? Um, because Zionists weren't really around when Europeans went over to North America or to Australia. And I don't know what your positions are in terms of how the aboriginal people or the, the the native uh were dealt with and exterminated or wiped out whatever it is the point is they weren't zionists back then so like is it not just a case that having mass migration having people come from countries that you've bombed colonized occupied sanctioned whatever it is are naturally going to come to you are naturally going to come to your continent because you've left their nations in shitholes, so they're going to naturally come to your countries. Some will come with a chip on their shoulder, like this is the least you owe us. Others will be like, we don't actually want to be here because culturally there is hostility here, culturally they're different here, religiously they're different here, but we're coming here because our situation is that bad in the case of Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans, right? I'm just trying to understand that. But Syrians,
1: Iraqis and Afghans, that is completely Zio. That's, that's part of the Zionist influence. You were talking about sort of historic colonialism.
0: Oh, yeah, but, but, okay, but,
1: but, but I think the two are different. You have to, you have to separate the two. Okay. You can't put historic colonialism in the same boat. What we're talking about in the Middle East is Zionist-led wars. And if you're talking about historic colonialism, anyone that's watched any of my long-form videos on the subject will know I was not a fan at all of empire or colonialism. I think the British Empire overall, despite it giving more than it took to most of these countries.
0: What do you think that?
1: Oh, I do. I think that. I think the British Empire. Gave more than it took. I think absolutely. I think for every. For every. For every dozen tear. For every tear we caused, we dried a dozen more. I. I don't believe for one minute that most of what Britain did was bad. I think if you look at the infrastructure, the medical care, the irrigation, if you look at the the hospitals, if you look at the written languages, I think we did a, the farming. I think we did a lot of good in the world. However, I still think it was a mistake. And I believe it was a mistake fundamentally because meddling in the development of other nations or ethnic groups mm-hmm. is something that will always end badly. And I also believe that creating any form of society based on sort of a a, a tiered structure where you will have different ethnic groups at different levels, again, will lead to conflict as it has done. Now, if you look at the amount of aid, the amount of money, the amount of medical care given to former British colonies, this is huge and it goes on to this day. I don't think that gives these people a right just to come here. However, if I could go back in time, And I was in charge of Britain, and things would play out the way I would want it to play out. I would not have interfered in the development of any other country. I'd have let those people develop as they saw fit. But there is something you say, or there is something that people say, which is a a sort of a big kind of lie is that all of these places were peaceful sort of come by our nations where everyone got on they, with they them? Weren't they weren't. No, they weren't. They were people that were at war with each other. It was a time of empires, it was a time of conquests. And if you For look, Europeans, yes. No, but but even in Africa at the time Which
0: empire was in Africa before the Brits and the Europeans landed?
1: Well, if you look at the uh, the Ashanti Empire in what is modern-day Ghana, that was one of the largest black empires on the continent of Africa, and they built their wealth of conquering other black empires, other black tribes, and then selling the people that they conquered mm. to Jews, Europeans, and Arabs who would buy them. So it's not just a clear-cut case as some like to make it out, that white people were doing all these terrible things, but the rest of the world was a rainbow place. No, I don't. No, 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 you know, I, I, pixies I, I, and goodness no, and, no, no, you I, know, I, singing songs together. Because it wasn't. No, that's no,
0: just I, a lie. I think anyone who presents such such a case, that's not honest. That's not honest. You know, it, what about the Arab slave
1: it, trade? More, more, no, no. more blacks went to, we'll know, to Arab them. nations. And what I'm saying is... The Arab
0: slave trade had blacks, Arabs, Persians, Turks whites, Romans. The transatlantic slave trade was exclusively black. And what
1: I'm saying is we could all go back in history and point fingers at things different people did when it comes down to it. All races of men owned slaves Mm. and all races of men at one time or another were slaves. Whites owned slaves. Whites were slaves at different times.
0: So what's your what's your perspective on the transatlantic slavery, slave trade?
1: Again, I'm not interested in slavery in terms of doing it. I'm not somebody who would be like, right, you know, if we came to power tomorrow, we would start all this up again. The, sl- the transatlantic slave trade was a bad thing. It was a bad thing at the time, and it's still a bad thing to this day because of the racial problems that, ex- that are experienced in America because of the knock-on effects of mm-hmm. that. I don't believe that blacks should have been shipped out of Africa. I think the best place for... Africa for for Blacks is in Africa. And I think Blacks should be allowed to flourish amongst their own people, embrace their own culture around people like them, they should be allowed their in group preference. And you might say to me, well, what about Blacks who have lived in America for, you know, decades or a century or more? What about those people? Well, I think America is a complex situation. And there should be, um, you know, peaceful separation in America. And I'm sure I've heard many white nationalists in America who have said, look, you know, we would be happy, they would be happy for blacks to have their own state where they could live, you know, on American soil but amongst our own people, taking their destiny into their own hands. So I think there's solutions to Mm. these complex problems, but I think the problems are complex. And I think one of the biggest problems with these complex issues that we're talking about is that they're all (coughs) blamed on white people. And that is a huge error to make. And that is an error pushed by anti-white academia, which is disproportionately influenced by cultural Marxists who are, you know, largely Jewish.
0: So there's a couple of points I want to just respond to, Mark. Uh for our views and listeners, both the Muslims and non-Muslims, right? You know, on the on the issue of historic ethno-nationalism and that you said that look, historically, uh nowhere was a utopian until the Europeans arrived and you know, and and, and it would be wrong to depict- They weren't that. even utopian when Europeans. Yeah, arrived. yeah but, I'm, but I'm saying that it would even be wrong to depict that. So anyone who does that is dishonest, right? Yeah. But I will say this, and I say this with firm conviction, and the history books um have testified to this Non-Muslims, non-Jewish historians have testified to this. That the early Islamic empire and generally Islamic civilization, um, it managed different races and ethnicities to live amongst each other far better than Europe did. And I explained to you how. Turks are ethnically different to Kurds. Kurds are ethnically different to Arabs. Arabs are ethnically different to the black man. The black man is ethnically different to the Berber. The Berber is ethnically different to the Bengali. <laughs> but there was no ethno wars. There was people lived amongst each other and the unifying thing was Islam. The unifying thing that kept them together and glued together. Yes, there was wars. Lots of wars. Wars, power struggles, sectarian wars, pa- all of that. I'm not even denying that. Anyone who presents Islamic history as some some type of utopian faultless, it's a lie. But I will confidently say that we managed race relations far better because we didn't centre it around ethnicity, we centred it around Islam and being Muslim. To the extent that when the Jews were kicked out as part of the Inquisition and when they were regularly kicked out of Europe, when they weren't in the favourable side of the kings that were warring, They came to Baghdad, they came to uh, Constantinople, Istanbul, they came to the Muslim world where they lived in peace. Christians had their own courts in the Islamic world. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, yes, there's commonalities about what we're discussing today. But historically, and I guess we spoke about this before, that an ethno nationalist and a pan-Islamic Muslim, whilst there will be overlaps, for sure. Uh, On points of traditionalism and stuff like that, uh, as well as the modern issues of LGBT, uh, women's role in society and all that kind of stuff. Usury. Usury, sure. But Europe accepted usury. Europe accepted usury. Christian kings accepted usury. Prophet Muhammad banned usury from day one of Medina markets. And for over a thousand years, we banned and outlawed usury. European kings accepted usury They used usury based loans and weapons to fight each other So I guess what I'm trying to say to both our listeners and your side and everyone is that No civilization was a utopia ever, even remotely close to it The very fact that you have penal codes and laws for crimes is a testimony that you can never have a utopia for Muslims in this life But what I will say, and I'll I'll say this again, that we feel that Islam and religion, but Islam specifically managed to deal with all these different melting pots. Because you don't think that Arabs had issues with non-Arabs? No, no, of course you did. But, but I think what you're saying here is
1: slightly unfair. Because if you look at, say, Islamic invasions of Europe, the Islamic uh, dominance of Spain for many years. It,
0: we didn't we, ethnically cleanse the Europeans out of Muslim Spain. No, you didn't. But you did enslave them, and you sold them. But that was, that was part and parcel of the
1: life back then. But that's, but that's exactly what I'm saying. That Things was, happened. S- it was complex. Yeah, it was and part of war what i what i believe now is you and i are never going to change what happened because it happened. You can't go back in time. You know, hindsight is twenty-twenty. We can look back and unpick things and say, well, this would be better if that hadn't happened and this should have been done differently. But what you can do is you can learn from history. You can learn from conflicts. You can learn from unfortunate historical occurrences mm-hmm. and ensure they don't happen again. And you can use mistakes and uh, h- historical occurrences to plot a better path. Towards a better future. And looking at history, looking at what's happened, looking at the mistakes of the past, I think the best future, as I said, is an ethno-nationalist world. It's a diverse world where everyone gets their own space, but we don't live in each other's back pockets and we're not constantly waging war against each other. Now, in the past, war may have been waged for territory. It may have been waged for profit. It may have been waged religion. Yeah, it may have been waged for a variety of different reasons. But now, war is largely waged for. It's largely waged by the Judeo-American state for Zionist influence and for Zionist power. And this is something you and I have discussed, obviously, before this interview took Mm -hmm. place. And looking forward, I do not want an American-British empire. I do not want American-British colonialism. I look at the colonial past. I don't think that was, you know, something that has resulted in a good series of events after that. Like, after colonialism, it has not been on balance what has been best for Africa, despite the intentions of some of the people that I believe we're good, it has not been good for British people. And when we say British people, let's look at what the masterminds of British colonialism did to British people. You know, whilst they were doing things in Africa, they were shoving little boys up chimneys, you know, imprisoning, you know, single mums and their daughters in workhouses, forcing children to crawl under, you know, machinery in mills where they got their arms torn off or were scalped. You know, the people who were in control of Britain you might argue treated people overseas badly. Well, I would argue they treated the white British working class just as badly here at home you know capitalism isn't something that i endorse i don't endorse capitalism or communism and i don't endorse using people as economic pawns for profit part of my ethno-nationalist belief is that we should work towards productive enterprise and within an ethno-nationalist society we treat people as brothers and sisters within a wider ethno-nationalist community. And I'm sure that you would say you would treat fellow Muslims as brothers and sisters as part of a wider Islamic community. So I think that would be a bit of a similarity. And you're obviously a Muslim, I'm an ethno-nationalist. But in that sense, I think there's a similarity, there's a commonality.
0: What's your thoughts on tens of millions of Muslims from, I'd probably even say into the hundreds possibly, but definitely tens of millions from Morocco all the way to Indonesia, as north as the Caucasus, as south as Tanzania, many of whom have expressed and continue to express a desire for a unified Islamic world. Well, as I say, I'm not a
1: Muslim. I don't live in those countries. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I Muslims wanting their I lands to want, be... I want people to live in their own ethno-nationalist nations where they can take their destiny into their own hands and if that is their desired destiny I believe that is where they should take their people and their people should not be impeded when they pursue their destiny just like my people should not be impeded pursuing their destiny and if that's what those people choose and that is their will then I smile upon that, that's up to them. I don't want to stop that. I don't want to break people apart who want to be together. Are you a Christian yourself? I'm nominally a Christian, yes, but I'm not a Christ- Christian nationalist. Okay. What does, when you say nominally a Christian? Well, I was brought up in a Christian household. I went to church. Do you believe we sang in God? hymns at school. Yes, I do believe in God. However- Hell and heaven. I believe there will be a judgment for people. Okay. I, I, I find Christianity, did you ever have sort of choose your own adventure books when you were a kid?
0: Yeah, Christianity's become like that, not it?
1: I think Christianity, if you, if you look at it, God basically says you've got free will. You choose your own adventure, and at the end of it, you're judged for the choices you made. Yeah. So, you know, you choose your own adventure. How you live your life is up to you. You have free will, and at the end of it, you are judged on those choices. And I believe there will be a judgment for people. I believe people live good lives, and I believe people live bad lives. Do you believe I, you've
0: lived a good life?
1: I believe that I have done things within a moral framework that I believe is right and I do my best not to stray from that moral framework. I try to live my life in a just and honest manner. I do not lie to people. I do not deceive people. I do not steal from people. I do not hurt people. I go about my life in what i believe is the morally correct way advocating for my people in a lawful way would you say your morality is shaped by christianity i'd say yes um i think i was bored look i'm 43 i grew up in a world where children sang christian hymns where we had nativity plays at christmas these things i actually cherish i look back on those things now And I cherish them, you know. And we had a Christian morality, but back then, Christian morality is different to what Christian morality is now. Christianity is an institution in Britain that has been warped, co opted, twisted, turned on its head. So Christian morality. Frustrated, watered down. You can, you can, yeah, keep piling it on. All of those things to the point where now, I would say if you had a Christian. Uh, minister from when I was a little boy, and you had a Christian minister now, those two would probably come to blows with one another. One would be calling the police on the other and reporting him for hate crimes. Because I would say that Christian morality, when I was a child, was mum, dad, children, a healthy family. It was nurturing children, protecting them from sickness and madness. You know, a group of patriotic alternative activists, as we speak, are out on the streets demonstrating against Drag Queen Story Hour. Now, I should imagine, you know, that Drag Queen Story Hour would probably be endorsed by many Christian ministers today, but back when I was a child, Christian ministers would have been appalled. They'd have been talking about that as an evil. And I think that every Western institution, unless somebody can point out one that hasn't been, has been taken over, perverted, warped, and turned against Western people, and that's a problem. So yes, if you said to me, do I have Christian morality, I would have to qualify that my morality is of Christianity of a yesteryear when I was brought up, not the modern warped, bizarre, you know, perverted, almost satanic, you know, Christian morality that you see in the modern world.
0: I'm thinking, I'm I'm still kind of in my head wondering that once I've done their coup and taken over Britain and have paid me and my family two million pounds to leave.
1: Uh, two million might be a bit steep, my friend. No, but, no, 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 you no, know, no. but I like you, so we might, we might be able to give you a little bit <laughs> okay, extra.
0: Okay, okay. But once but, but you're still left with 300,000 or so of, of fellow white Muslims, what, what are you going to do with them? Well, and they're your brothers as well. Look, under the, your- there are, the problem is,
1: as you further intertwine people and mix things up, Undoing that mixing does become harder. And that is an interesting question. But they're
0: going to marry and have kids and they're going to multiply. And they are, as we
1: speak. Look, look, these questions are very uncomfortable questions for ethno-nationalists. However, that would be a discussion that I would find very interesting to have with, say, a white Muslim and how they felt they could work alongside ethno-nationalists.
0: not going to deal with them like the Moriscos, are you? I don't know what that is. But. So Moriscos were the, um, so you know when the Inquisition happened, yeah. a happened there was, the reconquista happened, the Moriscos were a significantly white Spaniard Muslims. Mm. They were a mix of Arabs and Moors and Berbers as well, but many of them were white Spaniards who became Muslim, We were there for 800 years. And um, the Moriscos were forced to denounce the Islamic faith to remain in Spain. So they kind of were like secret Muslims or cultural Muslims, but were white Spaniards. But even they were driven out. Look,
1: I don't want to look. It's not a policy of ours, nor do I want to ever see people driven out of anywhere by gunpoint. You know, that's not what I'm about. That's why I'm having this conversation with you today, because and I've had conversation with other Muslims, with black groups, because I would rather find commonalities. I would rather find positions that we agree on so that this unnatural divisive multiculturalism that we've been thrust into can be unpicked before we are at each other's throats which i believe is an inevitability as things get worse however in the middle east there is a growing ethno state which is an ethno state built by jews for jews but protected and funded by the west and what i find the greatest hypocrisy of my time is that the people who drive multiculturalism in the West and extol its virtues do the very opposite for their people in the Middle East. So it is an ethno-state for them, but it is the melting pot and the conflict for the rest of us.
0: Many from <coughs> amongst the Jewish community, whether they're Zionists or anti-Zionist, would say that look, a lot of the stuff that Mark's saying is anti-Semitic. Conspiracy theories. And uh, I know one of the subject matters I would like to talk about is
1: what. But anti Semitism is a trick. And that's not me saying it. That's a quote from a prominent Israeli politician. I forget her name. I think it's Shalomit uh, Aloni. I might,
0: you know, I'll, I'll, if, I'll, if, I'll, Google, I'll,
1: Google it. I'll find the quote and I'll put it. Google it. Google it now. Google it now. And see what she said. Because you'll be able to pull it up. Anti-Semitism—it's a trick. We always use it to silence critics of Israel.
0: Shulamet Aloni. Yes, she said that. She said. And what did she say? She said anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is a trick. That's it. That's all we got. She said, it's part of a longer speech. Yeah. Um,
1: Anti-Semitism—it's a trick.
0: Shulamit Aloni.
1: We... Yeah, I was right. It's a trick. We always use it. She said. Why do they always use it to silence criticism? of Zionist or Jewish activity which benefits Jews, but is not beneficial to others. So you get terms like this thrown at people like me, which are silencing tactics, racism, xenophobe, anti-Semitic. And then there's the H word, which is basically like the H bomb of ending free speech. You know, you mentioned the Holocaust, then everyone has to shut up. These are words that are used to stifle debate and to end free speech. And I believe in freedom of speech. And I'll tell you this now, I might not agree with you on anything, on on anything or everything. I think I agree with you on some things, but Mm -hmm. I might not agree with you on everything. But I do believe you should have the right to freedom of speech. I believe you should be able to put over your views or oh, it's not a democracy, but free speech is being stifled from people like Do you believe like in you. democracy? I believe in what, this is another comp. This is, you give me essay questions. I could give you 3,000 words. We've, we've no, got no, time. I could, you're I could give 3,000 words. Tra- tra- you're trained <laughs> in, you're, you're in three hours, we have yeah. got time. It's, prepare for the essay. <laughs> yeah. Look, democracy is a wonderful mechanism of government if, it is implemented as it was designed to be implemented. So it's a system of representation. We can't all go to parliament. So we vote for somebody at local level who goes to parliament, puts over our views and represents us. It's representative. It's called representative democracy because we vote for somebody who goes to put over our views in parliament because we can't all sit in parliament. The building's not big enough. You, you know, There's 70 million people in the UK, 70 million people can't sit in one building. So they have a building that seats 650 people and you vote for people to go and represent you. But this isn't representative democracy. This is a two-party oligarchy where both parties tell you what you should think, repeatedly lie to you, rule over you, and you vote vote for a lesser of two evils and that lesser of two evils then rules over you rather than represents you. So modern democracy is a farce, it's a sham, it's a lie. Representative democracy as it was devised is something that would be noble and good but it is very easily subverted and turned in to this two-party oligarchy that we suffer under.
0: In Currently at the moment Is there a democracy or a Western state which reflects what you would like a future Britain to model? I would say any country which has a
1: media, as we do or as America does, can never be a democracy. Because when you have a media which is controlled by a small group of people, so in the UK we have national papers and we have local papers. Now, one of the national papers, you've heard of the Daily Mail, but you might not have heard of sort of like Derbyshire Live or the Manchester Evening News or the Birmingham Live News or the Yorkshire Evening Post. So there's all these different groups, and you might not have heard of all of them, but they are the majority of these local papers are all owned by the Daily Mirror. So news then filters down through these newspapers and through these news groups. Ed-
0: editorial stances, yeah, editorial positions. Exactly.
1: So all of a sudden everything that is presented to the general public is done through, through a certain lens and through a certain filter. And at that point democracy is impossible because if everything that is being fed to you that you make decisions on is fed to you Via a controlled
0: source, you can't ever make your mind up. So, if 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 that's an issue with an oligarchy-type based controlled media in a quote-unquote democracy, would you prefer then a state-run media? No, I believe in a free media. What does a free um, media look like? Oh, Eric? a free
1: media was like YouTube in 2016 so when i set up my youtube well i had a youtube account for years and it had one stupid video on it
0: you're banned from meta
1: right oh, i'm banned from everything mate i'm banned from everything you can find me by the way on telegram gab rumble odyssey and BitChute. but every major platform mm-hmm. that has basically um A monopoly every monopoly platform so really youtube is the monopoly video platform because it's sort of 90 percent of video views go through youtube um the next biggest is vimeo and i'm on neither of those but anyway youtube back in the day when i started producing proper political videos on there was what the media should be like the media should be a place where any man can have their say where if somebody's words are popular more people should be able to listen to them and engage with them and that completely democratized media so i had videos so there's there's me i'm sat in my spare time with a pc an old copy of windows movie maker nothing flash not thousands of pounds of software a blue yeti mic that i spent 99 pounds on and i'm making videos stitching them together crudely with graphics in my spare time. And I'm getting a million plus views on some of these videos and knocking it out of the park. That's what a proper democratic media would look like, that everyone can start a channel, use the platform equally. And if people flock to them, they flock to them. And if they don't want to watch them, they don't want to watch them. Then all of a sudden, YouTube shut down that democratic media. And now you go on YouTube and you look for a political opinion and it's Sky News, it's ITV News, it's a BBC clip, it's something that's controlled or it's one of a myriad of rubber-stamped establishment talking heads that are basically allowed on the platform and are given sort of a YouTube manager to tell them what they can and can't say. And that is would be a proper media platform so when i was flying high on there as were many others who were banned it's not just all about me loads of other people were banned you know people like the iconoclast um, people like laura towler loads of people were banned. david duke he had documentaries that were seen by four or five million people you know these are huge things, and people loved his channel and then they took it down so what we're seeing here is that when we do have a democratic free media where anyone can have their say and people choose genuinely what opinions they listen to. Do you want to tell the people who David Duke is? Uh, David Duke is a American politician. Klansman. He was um, in the KKK when he was, well, before I was even born. So before I was even, before I was even here on the planet, you, he, you, you, linked up with him a few times. In oh, I've worked with him every week. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, um, Look, is it it not inevitable?
1: If you watch the, uh, it was a Hollywood movie called Black KKK Klansman, and he's, it's about his uh, his sort of political
0: life, yeah. Um, Isn't it inevitable, understandable, that any ruling establishment, whether they're ethno-nationalists, whether they're Islamic, whether they're Christian, whether they're atheist, whether they're socialist, if, let's say, a strongman ethno-nationalist took over the United Kingdom... Right, you've got your strongman leader, yeah. Why would you, aka he, me, he, or whoever it is, yourself, or whatever? <laughs> why would you allow? Why would you allow opposing views to cause uh, further turmoil in this in this in this nation that you've worked so hard to build? I will tell you why. Why?
1: Because it's very important to have people able to voice opposing views. To you've left- seen me on so um, debates, right? I, I i cut through people like a knife through butter and that's because i'm speaking the truth and i know my points if you are scared that what you are saying is incorrect that's when you need to censor people i'm not scared i am absolutely not scared in the slightest of other people's opinions when i date debated people like destiny when i debated those four destiny. jews at the same time and i was just like debating them all It was me plus these four Jews and they were all blasting their stuff at me and I was debating each and every one of them all at the same time. I was fine because I'm speaking the truth. The truth is your most trusty sword and shield. And if you have a honourable society, you don't mind your truth being challenged. The only time the truth fears investigation is if it's not actually the truth. If it's a lie masquerading as truth. If there's ever something that people tell you, it is absolutely verboten for you to look into this, but what you're looking into or what you want to look into is the truth. That's when you know that the truth you're looking into is a lie. The only people who fear debate are liars, frauds, and charlatans.
0: I want to make something very clear as well, because it's related to the point you have just made. Um, In Islam, and Muslims generally have absolutely no issue with our faith, our creed being investigated, scrutinised, criticised, people disagreeing with it. I swear to you, we've got a thousand year tradition of Christians uh, criticising Islam in Baghdad across the Muslim world. The issue Muslims have, and I guess it's related to the point about, you know, uh, questioning the truth and certain red lines, is the way those criticisms are conveyed. So if you want to question something that Prophet Muhammad upon him be peace, did, whether it's his marriage to Aisha, whether it's his policies once he got to Medina, whatever it is, whether it's the stoning of the adulterer, uh, the laws pertaining to X, Y and Z, whatever it is that any critic of Muslim or Islam has about the religion. Islam has an issue with the way it is criticized. So if you're gonna if you're gonna disagree with us and you're gonna disagree with the Prophet Muhammad upon peace, you wanna say, you wanna, you wanna say it, by all means do it. Say that you believe that he is a false prophet. If that's what you believe, say we say it in a respectful way, and there's certain red lines. And these are sacred red lines for us. So whilst we accept our faith to be critiqued, no problem. What we're saying is do so in a respectful way. What's your thoughts on gratuitous? insults um defamatory ways of making a point
1: well firstly there's a couple of things i wanted to say because there's a caveat to what i said about free speech i do not class there's a couple of things that i don't think fall under free speech one is actual incitement which is you know was illegal under English common law so if you walk down the street say you must all go and murder person X or you must burn down person X's you know home that is incitement and that would not be free speech Uh, I don't think we need laws to further restrict, restrict free speech that should be dealt with under historic incitement laws and I also don't believe that it is free speech to say things to children so I don't believe that if there is some you know flamboyant homosexual drag queen that wants Mm. to advocate for sex with children. I don't think they should have the right to go and sit in libraries and, you know, speak to children. I think that children should be kept out of certain debates. And, you know, when children come of age, they should be introduced to topics as and when their parents see fit. So I think there are, you know, caveats to this. But in terms of what you say about being insulting, I think for me, I would say it is more important, important to have the right to insult than it is to have the right not to be insulted. Because you will find that most people in society are find something insensitive or insulting. And if everyone's needs were catered to and no one could ever be insulted or have their feelings hurt it would impact on everyone's right to freedom of speech. Now, I know what you're relating to here. You're relating to people who are part of certain anti-Islam groups who say things about your prophet relating to...
0: In a particular way. In a
1: particular way. In a particular Or way. And um, can, and burn I, the Quran or things yes. like that. Now, I don't do things like that. And I don't do things like that because I think that really... Serves the Zionist cause because what it does is, as I said, we're in this multicultural tinderbox, and that just, you know, heats it up a little more. We're in this melting pot and that turns the flame up a little bit more under that melting pot and it starts to bubble a little bit. And do I see, don't want that conflict.
0: Do you see Stephen Yassi Lennon, Tommy doing this kind of stuff? I see I
1: see a number of people doing things to provoke the other side. And I don't want to what's prov- the
0: incentive? What's his incentive?
1: Oh, he's, what? pa- he's paid by lots of Jewish groups like the Middle East for him. Everyone knows what his incentive is. Right. You know, he's been to Israel, you've seen him in that you've seen him in the Mossad t right. shirt. You've seen him wearing the little hat. You've seen him, um, you know, speaking at these, uh, you know, Jewish funded groups in America talking about, you know, this, this his, great- his
0: friends didn't want him to join the uh, Solidarity March. No, 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 because sometimes my friend, Sometimes you have
1: a group of people who pay you to do their dirty work, but then when they're having their tea party, they don't exactly want you sat next to them at the table. You're just the guy that does the dirty work. And Tommy's the guy who does the dirty work for them. He's not the guy they want sat at the table drinking tea with them and eating cake. But Douglas and does polite. though. Douglas what?
0: Murray does though. What? Douglas Murray will have a cup of tea and oh, we'll sit down with us and
1: Yeah, of course. Because Douglas Murray is not Tommy Robinson. Tommy Robinson does the dirty work. He goes out on the street. He whips people up. You know, there's these clashes and things like that. That's what he's used to. That's why Zionists pay him. He does that kind of thing for him. You know, Ezra Levant, Middle East Forum, Pamela Geller, all these people, that's what they're using. But I do note, I have seen people in other countries burn the Quran, do things like that. I wouldn't choose to do that myself. I think doing things like that, heats things up. And I prefer to come and meet people like yourself, find commonalities and find ways to peacefully unpick the multicultural mess rather than make things worse. And I think if a lot of Muslims, say every Muslim in Britain had to watch this and was watching it now, and this was a live production, Muslim meets, you
0: know,
1: ethno-nationalists, you know, white ethno-nationalists, and I think most of them would be saying, well, this guy talks some sense. This guy talks some sense. This is a productive conversation. You know, and I said to you clearly before I came here, I didn't want this to be like Tommy meets Muslim where we're screeching at each other. And there's my team are holding me back, your team are holding you back. That's not productive. That's not going to help. How do you
0: think this conversation has gone so far?
1: I think it's been productive. Good. And when I had the conversation with Daniel, I thought it was productive. When I met uh, the black group in London, it was productive because that's what I want. I would rather have, look, If people can't have conversations like this, that's when problems start to arise. There's a lot of people today who feel that they can't express themselves in the UK. And if you can't express yourself and you get a lot of pent up anger, aggression, that's when things do start to go pop. People need an outlet. They need to be able to debate, to discuss, and to express themselves. That's what we're doing. That's always productive in my opinion.
0: There's a general election uh, looming, inevitable, in the coming months. I just want to get your thoughts on certain groups and political parties, just your initial thoughts, right, and what you think of them, because I speak to, I've, been, I've spoken to a few uh, nationalists, and they'll describe the Conservative Party as liberal.
1: They are. Like, Absolutely liberal. Like,
0: like to your, but to your standard person, that would be crazy, because to to Muslims, this is the most right-wing government we've had in some time.
1: No, 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 no. What you're misunderstanding is what the Conservatives say they are and what they really are. The Conservatives have a policy called their Populist Positioning Strategy. And a Populist Positioning Strategy is when you poll lots of people you want to vote for you. So like white working class people in
0: you know, swing. So there'll be be certain talking points, certain dog whistles, certain things to garner that support and leverage that support base. Exactly. So they'll come on hard on immigration, but not actually be hard on immigration. Is that what you're saying? So
1: what what happens is, so let's look at David Cameron. David Cameron made this big pledge. We will get net immigration down into into a five figure sum, you know, down under 100,000. Did he? No, he increased it. Theresa May, same pledge, because this is what everyone wants to hear we'll get that immigration down to this, you know, five-figure sum, under 100,000. Did she? No, she increased it. Then you got Johnson coming in. Johnson goes, we don't need numbers. You know, I'm a common man. You know, people don't need numbers and statistics. So I'm straight away thinking... This guy's definitely going to increase it if he says we don't need numbers. Um, but then he uses a term that his populist positioning strategists told him the people want to hear. So he shows, he goes, you know, with his boofy hair and his silly, dopey looks, he says, you know, we need a, an Australian-style points-based immigration system because everyone's heard from the Daily Mail and the Daily Express that. Australia's got this amazing points-based immigration system and Johnson's there saying all these things. Points-based, Australian style, you know, crack down on immigration. We'll set the points and when we need them, we'll let them in and we don't need them now so we won't blah, blah, blah and all this rubbish. And then as soon as he gets elected, he does bring in a points-based immigration system but sets the points level to one and you get one point, you know, for breathing air So then everyone comes in and he increased immigration again. And over 13 years of Tory rule, we have increased and increased and increased immigration. And every successive, with with the exception of Liz Truss, because she wasn't in long enough, every successive Conservative Party prime minister post-2010 when they got back in has increased immigration when every one of them, Pledge to bring down the numbers. And they do this with everything else. If you said to a normie on the street, which government legalized gay marriage, gay adoption, who was it? They'd go labor, labor, no, it's no, it's the, the Tories, the Tories, same sex
0: marriage bill, yeah. the RSC. Ex- ex- ex-
1: this is what I'm saying. So what you've got here is a two party system, which is Basically, an oligarchy. It's founded on lies, so people think you vote Tory, it's traditionalism, low immigrant numbers, low taxes. You vote la, yeah, low taxes. You vote Labour, you know, more immigration, you know, more LGBT, higher taxes. And you know what? That's a complete lie because it's exactly the same. Tories are taxing us to death. The economy's down the pan. You know. Migrants are coming in at an unprecedented level and kids are being indoctrinated in schools that they should you know, get a sex change. This is all happening under a Tory party government. I mean, just the other day, I posted, a li- I posted something on my Telegram about uh, an immigrant from Iran. So, and I admire Iran for this, by the way. Before we go any further, I, just, um, I admire Iran for this. He was on the run because he'd been found guilty in Iran of rape and they wanted to execute him. So because so he's a rapist who's come from Iran and the Iranians want to execute him. So he comes to Britain and says look I've done this crime you know you probably don't like me for that but they will kill me. So the Tory government's home office says right let him in. He then rapes a woman in Britain. So people say well we need to be deported. He goes in you know in front of a deportation council. They said, well, we can't deport him because the Iranians will kill him. So he stays. And this is all happening under a Tory government. This tough, you know, law and order, anti-immigration government. It's not. It's all a lie. It's the same. They're all taking us to the same place. Reform? Reform as a party are essentially a toothless tiger they will do very little, if anything. They're what I call a safety valve group. So they're a group that when people get really angry, they say, who are we going to vote for? Well, I'm not anywhere anymore because I'm not on YouTube. You know, I'm not on any mainstream thing. But reform will be put in front of them. Oh, yeah, Nigel Farage reform. No, they will just maintain the status quo. They're there so that people can sound off. It's what we call a safety valve organization. I think Britain First doesn't really have... Anything of a national profile in terms of being able to stand election. So if there was a general election tomorrow, I no, believe. I'm asking
0: just your thoughts on, on the. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, your thoughts. Not, not, even, f- not on them actually winning anything, to be honest. Well, no, but that, that's got to be
1: a function of this. Yeah. Like Britain first are a registered political party. But if there was a general election called tomorrow, you know, the Tories would fight every seat, Labour would fight every seat, the Lib Dems would fight nearly every seat, the SNP would fight every seat in Scotland, and Reform would probably fight. I think, between 400 to 650 seats. So they are a major player. You know, they are sort of the UKIP's successor party. You've got to remember, UKIP got over 4 million votes one year. So that's a major player. But I think they are there as a safety valve. Because really, they are very close to the Tories. And whenever they're actually asked, you know, about whether they're going to grow some serious teeth and do things, they always sort of fall in line with what the media want them to fall in line with, so they get, you know, newspaper coverage. Because, you know, if the media pull out that big stick and say, you're going a bit too far, these safety valve parties do fall in line.
0: What about British Democrats?
1: The British Democrats, they're a a small party. They are registered with the Electoral Commission. But again, you're talking about parties now that if they were to stand seats, they would stand one or two seats. And for them, it would be a victory if they got 5% and get their deposit back. I was talking about parties that will stand what I consider a significant of number course. of seats, which is more than half the parliamentary seats. You know, the British National Party got to the point where they stood 340 seats, which was half the parliamentary seats right, If These in sentiments
0: are genuine. I mean, if you're seeing anti-immigration sentiments, even anti-Muslim sentiments, um, anti-LGBT sentiments, if these sentiments are real grassroots and it's in the hearts and minds of, many white patriots why wouldn't they vote for these parties
1: that's an essay question and i'll try and sum it why up. why do this. they vote I, for I, can, I can give you an answer i'll give you the answer because we have a number of problems in this country one is the media now the media gives m- massively disproportionate coverage to the two it's main brainwashing parties.
0: conditioning yeah
1: bra- brainwashing, brainwashing conditioning. conditioning and we live in a two-party system now a two-party system creates a thir- a certain thought process where you don't really vote for the party you like the most. You vote for the party you dislike the least, which is a different thing. So people say, I'm absolutely sick of the Tories. We've got to get them out. So who are we going to vote for? Well, Labour are the most likely to win and the most likely to force them out. So I'm going to vote Labour. So what you see post Second World War. So since 1945, we have seen this endless flip flopping Tory, Labour, Tory, Labour, Tory, Labour, and we're about to go back from Tory to Labour, because that's how people vote. And immigration is a massive draw. Because when Theresa May stood at the second to last general election, she came in on a few wishy washy things.
0: That's the one where she formed a coalition with the DUP, that one, that election. Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: and she really, really messed things up, and Corbyn made great strides. Massive. Then Johnson came and in. And smashed Corbyn. He absolutely, 80-seat majority. Yeah. Now, this isn't a record majority. The record majorities are really what you would call your Thatcher majority and your Blair majority. And I think they were about 170-seat majority. Yeah. they massive, massive majorities. But... The reason the Johnson majority was seen in the same light as those it was because it was 10 years of Tory rule for somebody to get a majority like that after 10 years of their party being, you know, people were like, well, You know, this is bigger than the Cameron majority, this is bigger than the May majority. You know, he doesn't need to go into coalition like they had done before with the Lib Dems and DUP. He smashed the red wall and he did it by hammering home this, I'm a normal guy, I understand what you think, I'm gonna crack down on immigration, I'm gonna use all my populist positioning strategy phrases on you and the public forfeit. And what you've got to understand and what your viewers or listeners have got to understand is when you're thinking of the public, You're uh, you're a religious man, obviously, but I'd say you're a highly political man too. Yes, You understand. We
0: we don't differentiate between the two Muslims.
1: Yeah, I could have guessed that. Yeah, yeah. we don't differentiate between the two. So you guys are all highly political, or the people watching are highly political, Mm. but most people at home aren't. So if you said to guys on the street, are the Tories an anti-immigration party? Your average Tory supporter who's not really that political, but goes and votes maybe once or twice every five years, maybe once in a council election, but always votes every general election. They will go, the average, yeah, of course they are. We're going to stop them coming in. And you speak to the average Labour voter, and the average Labour voter, of course they are. They're basically like Hitler, but with a blue tie. Oh, my God. And these people have this bizarre view of politics, which is informed by the media. And then you realise... It's just this Punch and Judy show. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all the media telling people, you know, what they should think. And then these two parties coming forward, red, blue, but basically, there's one guy behind the scenes. And he's got, you know, a Keir Starmer hand puppet on one hand, you know, and he's got a Rishi Sunak hand puppet on the other, you know, it's Labour Tory, but it's being controlled by mm. control. Jews? Oh, I think, Z- I would say the Zionist control of British politics is at an unprecedented level to the point where these people, as in the state of Israel, openly bribes elected officials in this country. And it's all allowed because it's Israel. So as there was a great... A, do-
0: does APAC. Do
1: there was that? a great documentary on Channel 4 years ago. Mm. And this was about the conservative friends of Israel, and they documented how many elected members of parliament, their workers and elected councillors were sent on holidays to Israel. Now, this was actually brought up in that court case I referenced earlier. When the prosecution asked uh, my friend who was on trial, what business is it of yours where conservative officials holiday? As if it's a stupid question to ask. Well, I'll tell you this. If the majority of the conservative party were all holidaying in Russia and Vladimir Putin was paying for it, people would care. And I'll tell you this... They'd be up on treason I'll tell you this, if the majority of conservative politicians were going to Saudi Arabia, Tommy Robinson would be marching up and down the street with a placard in both hands and a loud halo glued to his mouth and he wouldn't shut up about it. But because... They're holidaying in Israel. The media don't really talk about it. You get one documentary in 20 years. People are silenced for talking about it. And all these big names on sites like Twitter, Mm -hmm. YouTube, won't talk about it. And there's never anybody allowed to raise questions in parliament about it. Now, if you were a dual Russian citizen, they'd be asking for your finances to be on through. If you're a dual Israeli citizen and somebody says, well, can we have a look at who he's really on the side of, again, anti-Semitic, shut it down.
0: Let's talk a bit about Patriotic Alternative. I quite like what we were talking about a second ago. Is there nothing more? (laughs) No, 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 because it's kind of linked because it's an alternative. Your organization's called the Patriotic Alternative. It is. So, So what type of alternative, how are you, How are you an alternative to those said organisations? We're an
1: alternative because we speak honestly about Zionist power structures. I mean, look at Liz Truss. This is the other thing I wanted to bring up before we moved on to this. Do you know how long she was Prime Minister for? About 40 days. 40 days, yeah. It's the shortest ever tenure of a British Prime Minister. But do you know what? What was the one proclamation she made during that time? She stood in front of the conservative friends of Israel and declared that she was a Zionist. Yeah, yeah, of course. So the one thing that the short, you know, if you put a conservative prime minister in power and told them that they were only gonna be in power for a day. She got
0: to meet the queen as well. For
1: a day, I'll tell you this now they would manage to tell the world in that day that they were a Zionist. That would be the one thing they would want to get out, that they were on the side of Israel. That is how subservient the British state is to the state of Israel. And many British prime ministers before an election all have to go and bend the knee to the British board of deputies. They all (laughs) have to go and meet these powerful Jewish power brokers declare their adherence to the State of Israel. And it's the one reason why Jeremy Corbyn was never given a fair crack of the whip. What, what thought, do you think of
0: Jeremy? I don't think we'd
1: get on on everything, but I think we absolutely would agree on Zionist power and on the despicable treatment would you have been of Palestinians. For the, would, would you
0: have been better on the, work, for the working class white you know man than,
1: than Boris? Do you know what? I'll say this. Actual, I would say your
0: council estate standard right white person this. From struggling, say this. making
1: ends meet. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll say this: if you said to me, who would I rather have dinner with? You know if i had a button and it said you can have dinner with one of them they're both sat in seats in front of me and i push a button and depending on the button i push one of them drops down into a bucket of slurry and has to swim swim out of a, a bucket of sewage and the other one gets to come and have you know steak with me at a nice restaurant i would put johnson in the bucket of sewage and i would have dinner with jeremy corbyn and the reason being i think Generally, they'd both be bad for the UK, but at least Corbyn is honest about his intentions. So you had a very, very, uh, well, it was an awful run into the general election where Johnson got elected. So you'd have the Daily Mail say, hey, Corbyn, what do you want for immigration? And Corbyn would openly say that he wanted an open door welcoming system that brought in migrants from all over the world. And everyone was going, boo, hiss, and throwing tomatoes at him. Well, that was an honest answer. Johnson said, well, we're going to have this Australian-style points-based immigration system that's going to cut immigration. He was lying. And I would rather sit with an honest adversary than a lying creep who wants to put a dagger in my back, but is smiling to my face to win me over. And I think Corbyn was at least honest. And that is the best praise I can give to him. He was an honest politician. And you don't get them very often.
0: Patriotic Alternative was described by the Times as the largest far right group in Britain. Yes. Um, What is the membership numbers if you don't mind me asking?
1: I don't give out membership numbers. But we have around 18,000 people signed up. Where's
0: your strongest base?
1: Our strongest base at the moment is probably in the north of England.
0: Any Muslim members?
1: Um, We've, we do have non-white members. I don't know if we have any Muslim members. I, I, you know, generally speaking, when people come to our events, we do have Muslim supporters and we do have Muslim people coming. There are people who come to our events who are of different racial groups. And I know of at least one Muslim, I don't know if he's a paid up member, but he does come to our conferences.
0: And what are you, what are you offering to people of Britain?
1: We're offering genuine conversation. We are offering genuine policy. And we are offering genuine openness in discussing the Zionist influence, which is causing many of the problems that we've been discussing today and no other group does that. There is no other group in Britain which will talk about these things. We are very active on the streets. We have great social events and we are not a registered political party. Do you plan to be? We want to be, but our focus, our overriding focus is on building an ethnocentric community of like-minded people want to enjoy each other's company and who want to basically revel in their in-group preference. So you have many community groups for Muslims that are no community groups for white Britons. We are a community group for white Britons. We advocate for our rights, you know, legally advocate for our rights and we hold a range of different events, you know, some of which are political, some of which are social and we allow people to speak honestly about the Zionist problem and since the outbreak of the conflict in occupied Palestine we are the preeminent ethno nationalist group which opposes the genocide of the residents of Gaza
0: Patriotic Alternative do you plan on registering soon Yes we've we've tried numerous times
1: we are constantly stopped from registering by the electoral commission which every time we try they tell us there's one more thing that we have to alter on our registration. We alter it, then it's one more thing. And the things that they come up with are so petty and ridiculous. So there's the V in our logo is a stylized tick. So it's stylized to look like a tick. They said we couldn't have the logo because it looked like a tick and that might fool people into thinking they have to tick the box next to our logo. Ridiculous. Then they said, when we remove the tick and just put a V, They said, oh, well, now it just says patriotic alternative. And we were like, yeah. And they said, well, that's not a logo. It's just two words. I said, well, there's lots of words that are logos, Tesco, Sainsbury's, you know. Uh, And they were like, oh, no, no. But we decide that's not a logo. So we're like, okay. So then we did a stylized P-A. And then they said, well, that's now just two letters. And I said, but look at all these other parties that just have an abbreviation. Says, yeah, we don't believe your well-known enough. So then we brought forward dozens and dozens and dozens of newspaper reports that abbreviated to us PA. They said, we don't care. It's it's our decision, not the press. Okay, then. So then, once we'd done all that, we looked down other political parties, which are much less well-known to us, just using abbreviations in plain text, no stylizing, all let through. There is a conspiracy from the Electoral Commission, and we've done a freedom of information request that shows that the Home Office and other powerful campaigning groups have written and lobbied the Electoral Commission to not pass us, even though what we do is lawful. We are under attack all the time for simply advocating the way we do, because we are the only group in Britain that advocates for the rights of the indigenous people of these islands, whilst at the same time speaking out against the Zionist power structure that stifles our rights and freedoms.
0: You know, would you say that, not just patriotic alternative, not just PA, but generally white ethno-nationalists across Europe, is it a case that whilst those that are anti-Zionist. So you so you get, so you get some ethno-nationalists, or you get nationalist groups that are pro-Israel across. I'm talking Europe, now, I'm talking broadly speaking the West. And then you have those who are very vocal against Zionism and its influence uh, within domestic policy making, and uh, amongst many other things. Do you believe that those nationalist groups across Europe, and I'll put PA into that as well whether it's PA, Pagida, whoever it is, whichever group you can think we'll of. We're very
1: different to Pegida. Pagida are pro-Zionist. Yeah, we're, so we're not.
0: Yeah, so, so I'm talking about even, okay, so let's put the Zionist nationalist group. So let's talk about the anti-Zionist nationalist groups. Yeah. Is it still a case that you want, you still want to create a situation domestically, which makes it hard or difficult for non-Indigenous to not want to stay here to create that environment for them to eventually leave? No, we want, I would say we want equality. I'd say we want genuine equality. So for
1: example, if somebody comes here and they want to use the NHS, everyone should be treated the same. So they should speak English, you know? So that doesn't make it difficult for people. It means that people who come here are not living in sort of separate enclaves where they speak their own language, don't can't even speak English. We would, we would make it fair. We would make it so. If you want an interpreter to sit at your bedside in hospital, well, you've got to pay for that. You know, if, if a British person who speaks, you know, English, they don't get a bed in hospital because the hospitals don't have enough money, but they spend millions and millions of pounds every year on things like interpreters. All I would do would be to take away special privileges like that so people were genuinely treated equally. If somebody has come here and they learnt the language, if somebody's parents had come here, they'd learnt the language, they were born here and they were a British citizen, they would be offered voluntary repatriation, but they would not be discriminated against in the way that you are sort of suggesting.
0: So just just for on record, Patriotic Alternative isn't working towards creating an environment which makes it undesirable on a grassroots level. We
1: we believe that many migrant groups are given preferential treatment in this country, which creates a system whereby indigenous people are treated as second-class citizens.
0: Do you think Muslims are treated? I think in
1: some cases, Muslims are treated preferentially. Not in all cases. Oh, I think in the case, so for example, if you started a Muslim group tomorrow to raise money for specifically Muslim families, specifically Muslim families, you would probably, be smiled upon. Well, you would be smiled upon. By people who? would people by, by the state. But if a white group, say like a white English group, set up uh, a charity tomorrow, which was for the white English, and said, "Look, we're raising money for white English families who are in need," they would get a letter from the Equalities Commission saying, "Hey, you can't do this. This is discriminatory." So what I'm saying is, at the moment, ethnic groups within Britain are allowed in-group preference and self-determination if they're non-indigenous. So there are black community centres, Muslim community centres, there are charities to help black people get university places. If I tried to start a charity tomorrow called the you know, white working class university you know, degree protection scheme to ensure that white working class people were represented at university, that would not be allowed.
0: Uh, wouldn't that be the case? I, I mean, just paying doubles after here, wouldn't it be the case that the reason why there are black specific groups, faith-based groups, is because they are minority groups?
1: Uh, but, no, but that's an anti-white double standard. What I'm saying is that is anti-white. That is turning the indigenous people into second class citizens. We. You said earlier about how our communities have been broken down, and I gave you the example of the destruction of our mining communities, which were sort of almost like those estates were like mini ethno states, and they'd built a culture and traditions around the mining industry. They were broken apart, okay, and they were destroyed. But one way to break apart a community is to ban that community for, from advocating for. Their own rights to adv- ban them from advocating for themselves, it would be like saying, so if i whenever we go out and we put up a banner that says "White Lives Matter," mm. there is outrage in the media. The media will put up ever so if you know if I walk down you know the street in London with a white Lives Matter banner, there would be people calling for my arrest, there'd be politicians talking about it. the media would be saying it's outrageous. if a black man did that with a black Lives Matter banner that would be smiled upon. The same politicians that were calling for me to be arrested would be falling over themselves to go and shake his hand. There is a double standard, and that double standard is anti-white because mass migration into Britain is being wielded as a tool to disenfranchise the indigenous people.
0: So what's your thoughts on the Equalities Act then?
1: The Equalities Act is something that... when and the nine protected
0: groups. So but one, one but if- it's,
1: not, it's not just about the Act. It's not about the Act it's about the way the act is implemented if you pass if you pass an act like the equalities act and you implement it as it is stated and it is implemented across the board the same for everybody that is something which you would have to say well i agree with it or i don't agree with it but it's fair what, we have the equality they the should there should,
0: should be fair implementation but there is not fair Im-
1: implementation white people are discriminated against indigenous advocates such as myself are discriminated against it's why you can have people sent to jail for putting up stickers that say it's okay to be white but if somebody put up a sticker saying it's okay to be black you know it would be fine. This is a double standard, and this double standard is being wielded against the indigenous population. Why? To, why? So that we don't advocate for ourselves, so we don't stand up against mass immigration, so we don't speak out. It's a silence in A Zionist behind that people, as well. Jewish people and Zionists are massively overrepresented when it comes to those who have passed these anti-white and anti-free speech laws. And if you look now, these anti-free speech laws historically only used against white people who are advocates like myself for for you know white ethno nationalist groups, they are now being used against pro-Palestinian
0: activists. I swear down European Zionists they look as white as you. You wouldn't tell the difference. Look, Zionist is an interesting term.
1: Because not all Jews are Zionists, are we, and not all Zionists are Jews.
0: Can I ask you something? I, do, do you use Zionists to just stay safe instead of using Jews? No, because I've just said
1: not all Zionists are Jews and not all Jews are Zionists. You know, there are white Zionists like Liz Truss is a white Zionist.
0: Yeah. She's not Christi- Jewish. Christi- Christian Zionists. Like you get there are lots Zionists,
1: of yeah. white people. There's lots of people, lots of different faiths who are, there's, there's, you know, I don't even know if he's a real person, but there's a guy called calls himself the Imam of Peace.
0: Oh god uh, dear, I'm- that's a joker.
1: I think that's a joker and I...
0: He's a joker. He's an absolute charlatan. Yeah, Yeah. but but yeah, he calls him a...
1: Zionist is something which is not exclusive to Jews. Not all Jews are Zionists. So I do separate Zionist from Jewish influence. How do you separate
0: from the JQ though?
1: Uh, The Jewish question is one which is a much broader topic. So we've largely been talking about, and we've spoken privately about Zionist wars in the Middle East, my opposition to Zionist wars in the Middle East, but the Jewish influence is much, much wider than just wars in the Middle East and Zionist power.
0: is that linked to the replacement theory?
1: Um, well, replacement theory is something which is very, very complex.
0: Now that we've mentioned it, there's going to be a disclaimer on this video, like it was in Daniel's video. Have you seen that? So if you go to your debate video with Daniel, YouTube's put a disclaimer there on Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: it will do. It will yeah, do. So, but
0: the point is, when you
1: talk about uh, Jewish influence, you have to take into account things like the porn industry, feminism, cultural Marxism, the whole... LGBT industry, the anti-racist industry, the Holocaust industry, all of these things, all these endeavours are controlled or disproportionately controlled by people of Jewish descent and they are wielded in such a way that they have a negative impact on the white population.
0: Do you reject that that very claim that you just mentioned that would be seen as anti-semitic?
1: It would be seen as anti-Semitic by people who want to stifle the truth and the shut it up. The Board of Deputies
0: would regard it as anti-Semitic. Of course D- they would. The CST would regard it. Of course they would. Uh, Jewish Chronicle would regard of it as... Of course they would. Because ca- they don't want any criticism campaign of their... against anti-Semitism They don't want would. any criticism of yeah. their
1: activities. So put it like this. If you were to walk down the street and state that white people were behind uh, colonialism, slavery, that white people were basically devils, that white people should be guilty for existing, that all the ills of the world come from white people and white people should reject this thing called whiteness and repent for their their ancestors sins. I'm not so about that. No, 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 so If it. you
0: did, yeah, that would be legal. I'm but like, if you want to God, talk no, for, about for your listeners, I want them to know, yeah, I know, know you don't hold white really people if, collectively yeah, responsible, no, but
1: <laughs> the people that do hold white people collectively responsible are lawfully about allowed to do that. They are allowed to teach in universities that white people are responsible for all the ills of the world. And when they're speaking in those universities about white people being responsible for all the ills of the world, they're applauded for doing so. You can go into any library and buy books on white guilt and how white people are terrible and how whiteness is a disease. But if you as much as say, look, I don't like these things that are happening. And I've noticed, just noticed, that Jews are vastly overrepresented amongst the people pushing the things I don't like. You're anti-Semitic. So again, it's another double standard. It's this horrible double standard that white people can be criticized for a number of different things most of which are just nonsense, as we said earlier, historically inaccurate takes. But if you criticise, if you say, look, I don't like the mainstream media, but if you look at this chart, like Kanye did, Kanye held up his phone and said, look at this chart, look how many Jews are involved in the media, why is the media in America almost totally Jewish? All of a sudden, it's like, you know, the rabbi's got his big satellite phone out and he's screaming, shut it down. Uh, Terms like anti-Semitic, the Holocaust, all these things are thrown around. And people, you know are basically kicked off every mainstream media platform. They're kicked off all the social networks. They're not allowed to say, they're criminalized. This is unfair. It's not anti-Semitic to raise legitimate points that are backed up with the truth. And that's why if you're prosecuted in Britain for saying things, the judge will tell the jury, the truth is no defense in this case, because even if you prove that everything you said was absolutely true you can still go to prison for saying it. Why would you have a law in which the truth is no defence? Isn't that, isn't that counterintuitive to the whole idea of natural justice?
0: Of course it's not just. No, it's how, not just. How can no, that be no, just? That's what I mean. Of course it's not just. But that's, that's, that law is on the
1: books in Britain to silence people who speak uncomfortable truths. Is so we don't live in a democracy, do we? So we said earlier, is democracy a good thing? Well, if you plotted it out as it was designed to be implemented, maybe yes, but in the way it is implemented, it is not fair, it is not just, it is a bad thing. So do
0: you even consider the system that we have? No, it's not
1: democracy, it's a two-party oligarchy governed by a set of anti-white laws and double standards that are used primarily at the moment to criminalise white people who say things like I'm saying now, but these laws are going to be increasingly over the next few years, wheeled out to also persecute people who are pro Palestinian and anti Zionist, and who have legitimate we criticisms have. of Israel. We yeah, already started. Yeah.
0: So, is there any responsibility, do you think, that white Europeans do bear when it comes to whatever historical ills? Are you saying no? Nope? Are you saying that there's a disproportionate focus on on and the whites? I
1: think. Look. All people of the world have, like I said, owned slaves, and all people of the world have been slaves. And when you take that into account, and you look at slavery in a historical context, everyone has a certain degree of inherited guilt, if you like. But I don't believe the son should pay for the sins of the father. And I believe... We believe that as well. What? We believe that as well. Yeah. So really, and again, if... If my people, if white Europeans around the world have to pay for their ancestors' role in, say, the slave trade or colonialism... What about the, what
0: about the ongoing role? Wait a
1: second. If we have to pay for that, why doesn't every Israeli have to pay for the genocide that has taken place since 1947 and for the countless people that have been murdered or forced off their land because this inherited sin is used against white people so there are three pillars of white guilt there's colonialism the slave trade and the holocaust they are the inherited guilt that all white people have thrust upon them but people are committing genocide today And if you were to suggest there was any collective guilt that should fall on the people of that nation for the genocide that they are uh, committing, it would be anti-Semitic. And I'm sure by now many of your audience will be scratching their heads saying, this guy's making perfect sense, because it is perfect sense. And if you look at the actions, not just of the Israeli government, but of the Israeli people in this context, conflict. It's stomach-churning. The other day, the BBC called Israeli citizens who were blockading aid trucks attempting to deliver food, water, and much-needed medical care to Palestinians as protesters. What do you think they would call white nationalists? What do you think the BBC would call white nationalists if we were blockading aid trucks attempting to deliver aid to a war zone? What do you think they'd call us?
0: Uh, we wouldn't be protesters. Well, no, no, of course not. You'd, you'd be genocide enablers, genocide defenders. Gen- it'd white, be, it'd be white, white
1: supremacists, yeah, n- is what they would call us. But basically, these Zionists are nothing more than Jewish supremacists. But well, they're
0: white though. They're white like you they look those european jews they, they those look european white, jews, those european jews they look jews white, they white but they come
1: up on a dna test as something very different and if they want to gain access to the state of israel leading rabbis have said it should be done on parentage and dna because mm. they know they are separate and distinct the reason they have been so successful in subverting the west is because they look although they are distinct from us they look similar enough to To blend in. Mm. You know, if it was Chinese people doing all the things that I've said, people would be like, there's a lot of these Chinese people teaching white guilt in universities. A lot of Chinese people. You know, if every name on the front of a book about white guilt was Chinese, people are like, there's a lot of Chinese names pushing this white guilt. But because these people have changed their names, they've anglicized themselves. They walk amongst us and they look like us. It's like um, people like Margaret Hodge embarking in Dagenham. You know, people think, oh, she's just a normal white lady. Well, she's not. She's not, her real name's not Hodge. It's like Victoria Newland. you know, running the destruction of the Ukraine and trying to take out her ethnic grudges on Russians through the American State Department. The just- real name's not Newland. I think it's something like Noodleberg. look it up. Jewish.
0: They say those names were changed to safeguard them from persecution. No, their names were changed so that people didn't notice. Are you rejecting unequivocally uh, white supremacist ideas, uh, values, worldviews? Depends what you call white supremacist. I think that's like a real buzzword. Like okay, I okay, said okay, earlier, okay. Do you believe that th- th- there is any um, credence? to the superiority between races.
1: I think different races are better at different things. Tell me uh, then. Objective and subjective. Well, if I was to say that uh, African-Americans or those from, you know, Jamaica made better runners and basketball players, everyone would applaud me. If I say that, you know, white people are, you know, better when it comes to sort of advanced engineering, people, oh, boo, boo, that's because you've colonised advanced engineering. I think different people are good at different things. I've got many criticisms of white people.
0: What's your thoughts on eugenics, the theory of eugenics?
1: I think eugenics is an absolute valid theory. Um, People people partake in eugenics every day when it comes to dogs and racehorses and all sorts of animals you know when you breed a racehorse you get a you get a stud horse that is you know won lots of races and you breed it with a with a female horse a, a mare that has given birth to lots of award winning racehorses so why is it
0: okay to, why is it okay for them to mix and for the mankind not to mix well look i think you know People Bring best of the blacks or the best of the whites or the best of the Arabs well, no, the I best think, of the Turks I think, or the best of the Bengalis. I, I,
1: think, I think that really, if you had the best of the best of blacks and you mix them with other best of the best of blacks, I think that would be a good thing for black people. And I think it would ensure that there was an upcycle within the black community of black leaders, black, um, you know, black scholars, people who could take the black community in a positive direction. I would like to see every, because it's nature's order for any species to improve over time. And I would like every different race of man to improve over time. You know, I have no, no qualms in saying that if black people were granted their own nation, took their destiny in their own hands, and achieved magnificent things, I would applaud them for it. I don't hate other cultures. You know, I look at Japan, and there are lots of things about Japanese society. I've spoken about this on streams. So if somebody wants to pick through, you know, 1000s of hours of streams that I really admire, I really admire certain things about Japanese culture. I there's certain things about tribes living in the rainforest that I admire. And I think that white people could look at them and, you know, learn from them in the way that they live in harmony with nature and don't pollute or destroy. You know, I do think there's lots of things that white people or white civilization has done that hasn't always been optimal that we should learn from. I don't put any race of people on a pedestal and say they are blanket better than everybody else, because that would be foolish. However, as I said earlier, the subjective and objective and subjectively, I love my people the most and I want to be surrounded by them. And I am proud of the things that they've achieved.
0: You're going to upset 300,000 white Muslims, man. Are they part of your people? Um, as an eth- eth- national, as a white ethnic nationalist, are they, they
1: part of Racially, ethnically, they are part of my people, but they have taken on a religion which I you know, it's foreign to me. It feels foreign to me. You know, and it's it's as simple as that. But I think they have taken that on, as I said earlier, because they are being presented with, you know, Judeo-American Western liberal democracy and all the degeneracy that comes in tow with that. And they are rejecting that and they are going to the only strong traditional and, you know, if you like, ethnocentric group, that they see, they see Muslims, they see them going to mosque, they see the large families, they see community, they see people helping each other out, they see, you know, parts of cities that have been completely transformed to Muslim communities. And they think that looks like somewhere that if I became part of that, I would feel home. Because there is no white community, strong white masculine community for them to feel at home in. And that is something that disappoints me. Now, obviously, if that is a matter of faith for somebody, a matter of faith is a matter of faith, and I'm not going you know, it's, to, it's up to the individual. But when it comes down to it, I think there would be fewer white Muslim converts if there was, say, a healthy Christian church or healthy white nationalist alternative. Because mm-hmm. I think they would look for a healthy alternative amongst their own people first.
0: Bringing the podcast to a close. When someone Googles Mark Collette.
1: You're going to find the bad guy. Yeah. That's what they're going to say. I'm the bad guy. You're Nazi. They're going to say they're going to say all sorts of things about me.
0: What's your views on National Socialism? I think
1: National Socialism was a product of its time. I think there's things we can learn from it. I'm not gonna lie to you, there are certain things about the National Socialist regime that I admire. And, you know, I have said on, I've gone on record before saying that people should read books from that era, that people should learn about it. And I stand by that. you go into any university in Britain today, they'll tell you to read Marx, to read Lenin, to read Trotsky, to immerse yourself in all of these communist writings. But somebody says, read a book from National Socialist Germany and everyone loses their minds. Why? Why? Why can you only read one side of the argument but not read the other? Why is it
0: that if somebody says... Because Hitler waged a continental war, a global war. I mean, that's what they'd argue. They'd argue that Marx.
1: Well, Britain declared war on Germany for a start. Yeah, Britain declared war on Germany. And if it hadn't been for, uh, you know, it's weird
0: because no, see, I'm different, I'm, I'm different. The, the difference between Marx and Trotsky and Hitler is that they didn't wage wars in the in the in the. Well, sense they did. They did, but they killed. They killed
1: around forty plus mil, around forty million people. But Marx himself did not. But Marx's ideology did. Yeah. But and the people who implemented Marx's ideology did. So what I'm saying is, over a hundred million people were killed executed not in war but executed there's a big difference between killed in war and executed yes sure right communists killed executed over a hundred million people in the last century okay in you know huge numbers huge numbers. huge huge numbers. numbers that's a large number and the record actually for the most executions as percentage of a population goes to pol pot in cambodia he executed more as a percentage of his population than any other group for not adhering to communism. So, all of these mass murders have taken place. Communist China, Russia under Stalin, uh, Russia under Lenin, the Holodomor in the Ukraine. I mean, all, all the Central, central Asian all of, States, yeah, yeah. all of this all of this. But you can still immerse yourself in communism, call yourself a communist. You can go into university with your communist T-shirts on. They'll all smile at you and tell you to read communist ideology and steep yourself in it. But one person, i.e. me, says, hey, why not read a book that argues from the other side? And everyone loses their mind. It almost makes me think that they're all trying to hide something. Because if everything I said was so baseless, and if everything I said was so wrong, and if the book that I had recommended was so wildly filled with nonsense and evil, surely it would be easy to unpick, but it's not. They absolutely promote one argument and shut down any discourse that pushes back against that argument. And they don't care how genocidal The side is that they support. They will tell you it's peaceful. They'll make excuses for it. And I remember when I was at university, one thing that always amazed me was how many people at university would wear symbols of regimes that had killed millions of people, but nobody batted an eyelid. But if you were to say, you know what, I think we should reduce immigration into Britain people would go crazy. You're just like Hitler. Oh, y- your your words will lead to a Holocaust. What? This is just one big silencing tactic. It's one big way to ruin debate. And that brings us on to probably one thing we haven't talked about. Why are there certain parts of history you can't debate? Why are there certain terms used to silence any form of discourse on the genocide that's happening in Palestine. What are those words? What are those terms? You know, I know, you might be uncomfortable talking about it on YouTube, because it might get you a strike. But I'm sure that your listeners and your viewers know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So is neo-Nazi a wrong term to describe you? I would say I describe myself as an ethno-nationalist. I describe myself as an ethnic nationalist. People can call me whatever they want. It's a free, I believe in freedom of speech. So if people wanna call me that, they can call me that, but I should then be allowed to label them correctly. Anti-Semite? Anti-Semite, as I said, anti-Semitic, it's a trick. These words are used to silence people and to end debate. And that is why whenever anybody begins to push back in a way, that the Zionist system is not happy with, these terms are reeled out again and again and again. And they're going to be used more and more now against the pro-Palestine, anti-Israeli cause. And if that doesn't work, they will whip up fake Zio nationalists in this country to go out and confront you people and create create carnage, because that's what they want. I don't want that. I want discourse. I want to walk away with a handshake followed by peaceful separation so there aren't clashes. I don't want clashes. I don't want genocide. I don't want British taxpayers' money to be spent on slaughtering Palestinian women and children. It makes me sick. It makes me sick to the stomach, because what we have here is such a Zionist system that you have members of parliament now being censored, losing their ministerial posts, being suspended from political parties, deselected for simply calling for a ceasefire. How can calling for a ceasefire and calling for women and children not to be slaughtered get you deselected from a political party? Well, that's the question. And I'm going to give you the answer because that political party is bought and paid for by... The Zionist occupational government is part of the Zionist power structure.
0: What well, what would your final words be to military servicemen in Britain, in America, who actually fight these wars?
1: My final words to them would be get out of the military. Most Would military, you conscript against Russia? Absolutely not. Why? Throw off conscription, throw off these wars. I am not fighting for this corrupt Zio-governed nation. No way. I am not marching for Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson. No chance.
0: It's not happening.
1: My final words to those people would be, I understand that many people sign up out of love for their country, pride, the willingness ableness to go and defend their loved ones and their people, but you will not be defending your loved ones and your people. You will be slaughtering innocent people all over the Middle East for the gain of Israel. You are risking coming back in a body bag or with horrific injuries or PTSD to help the Israeli state, and your actions will also cause millions of people to be displaced who will come here, which will speed the replacement of white Britons here in the UK. That is the Zionist's game. The Zionist's game is to destabilise the Middle East for the greater Israel project, so Israel can grow and gain more power, and at the same time to force Muslims and Arabs out of the Middle East and into Europe. So white Europeans are reduced to a minority in their ancestral homelands. Those are the things the Zionists desire the most because they wish to be the only strong, functional, ethno-nationalist community in the world. All others must be destroyed or mix, And that is the issue of our time because it is leading to a myriad of problems that if they're not solved now, we, our children and our grandchildren, will end up paying the price.
0: Final words to genuine patriots with genuine concerns about the things that we've discussed, but primarily see Muslims as the main problem, number one.
1: Final words to them. Muslims are not the problem. Migrants are not the problem. The people who are the problem are the people who force these people out of their homes and then open the gates and welcome them in here with billions of pounds worth of taxpayers' money. Do not aim your anger at migrants or Muslims. Use your passion and your love for your people to organize on an ethnocentric basis in order to force our government out of power via legal routes. Organise democratically at a community-based level and get yourselves into positions of power so that you can legally advocate in a better way. That's what we must do. We must rediscover our roots. We must base what we do on our love for our people, on in-group preference, And we need to do so in a productive, legal way. The fact is, Muslims who have been killed, been forced out of their homes in the Middle East, they are victims of this Zionist world power structure, just as we are here in Britain as we pay for it and we suffer and we're replaced. We are both victims of this Zion tyranny.
0: And final words to Muslim viewers and listeners, some who may have found some of the things that you've said uncomfortable, but may have agreed with other things. What would your words be to those who have grievances towards the West, who have grievances towards British and American establishments, who have grievances towards servicemen who went and invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, who basically feel that, look, we've come here and, and, you know, there's a war against our people there and and then there's an ideological war against us here. Would your words be to Muslims? In- well, I've
1: actually made a video about this. I've got a channel on Odyssey, on Bitchute, and on Rumble. And there is a video, I can't remember the title, but it's something about how you know certain groups of people have a right to hate the West. If you were bombed out of your house, if your home was destroyed, if your friends, your family were murdered in these wars for Israel, you have a right to be angry. But if your anger is aimed at the servicemen or the soldiers who were essentially on the cutting edge of that violence you are aiming your anger in the wrong place those people were following orders they were following bad orders and they were doing the work of evil men in higher places you should organize democratically and peacefully to help do what I said earlier, to defeat the Zionist political structure. You should take power, and then you can advocate for the good of Palestinians. Then you can advocate for peace in the Middle East, and you can advocate for an end to this Zionist power structure. But by simply hating people, and this isn't meant to be insulting to the soldiers, but these soldiers are being used as pawns in the Zionist game, you hating them and hating the pawns is pointless. You need to look toward well, the establishment. What well, about the, is, hating the, the establishment. establishment? And you need to look at the man behind the chessboard moving those pawns. And you need to look at him and democratic and legal means of removing him from power. And I believe that in this country there are sizable Muslim communities that. You said religion is politics, and I agree, because you guys vote as blocks, and that's something I admire about your mm,
0: groups. Yep, we do. We're looking to uh, dethrone many Labour yeah. people. Yeah, and, the and that's what you
1: should do. My word to your people is I give you my heart. I will give you my heartfelt thanks if you help break down the political oligarchy in this country, throw off and reject the shackles of the two-party system, defeat both Labour and the Conservatives, and help break that two-party structure to ensure that something better can rise, and that when you see people like me, who are fundamentally white ethno-nationalists, come and speak to us, break bread with us, and figure out how we can unpick this mess peacefully and have a separation so that we are not at loggerheads. I do not want to march through the streets and see my supporters fighting with young Muslims in the streets. That is unproductive. It will end very, very badly for both sides. We need to understand what the problem is and not fight each other. This multicultural society was created so that we would fight each other, so we would be in conflict rather than being in conflict with the Zionist power structure. We need to make sure we're aiming our efforts at the right
0: enemy. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and there may be a part two.
1: I would very much like that. And I just want to say before I go, I really want to thank you and your uh, producer. You've been very, very kind to me. You bequeathed me with two cans of Red Bull, which was very good after a long journey. And I would just say to, you know, everyone who's listened, thank you for taking the time to listen to this uh, rather lengthy discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. And anyone that wants to reach out to me, I am one of the most available people on the Internet. You can follow me on Rumble, Odyssey. shoot, Telegram and Gab. And you can write to me at mark at thefallofwesternman.com. And I have a free book, The Fall of Western Man, which is available for free from www.thefallofwesternman.com.
0: Thank you, Mark. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's discussion with Mark. Lots to think about, lots to reflect upon, lots to research, lots to question. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you watched via YouTube, remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. If you're listening via all the audio channels, remember to find us in Spotify, Apple, Google and all the major audio platforms. Until next time, Salam alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. <laughs>